0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction upon our study of his word this morning. Father, it's such a privilege we have to come directly to your throne of grace. It is because we have a, an impeccable high priest who died upon the cross and whose death removed the veil between us and your throne so that on the basis of his death we have direct access to your throne of grace. Father, we're so thankful for our Savior, the one who came to deliver us from our sins and to give us new life, that we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might come to understand grace, and that we might come to understand the the real purpose and meaning of life as we are on this earth to serve you and to execute your plan. Father, as we study the life of our Savior and study the Gospels, may we be impressed again and again with the mandate that we see embedded throughout these Gospels, that we are to become students of your Word, that we might become students of you, students of our Lord, that we might implement these principles in our lives, that we might exhibit your character and your glory throughout the, to the human race and to the angels. And we pray that as we study today, we might again be impressed with your magnificent plan of grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, which as we've seen in the last few weeks, is focused as a message to the Jews, not as an evangelistic message per se, as I pointed out in the last a couple of classes, the original recipients of this gospel were Jewish believers. Matthew is writing to these Jewish believers because by the the midpoint of the first century, it's obvious that the kingdom that Jesus had proclaimed, that John the Baptist had proclaimed before him, that his disciples had proclaimed, was not coming into being. And there were questions being raised by, wait a minute, what if we were repented because the kingdom was at hand, where is it? What's going on? Not only was there the postponement of the kingdom, but there was something new transpiring in terms of the outreach to the Gentiles and the inclusion of Gentiles within this new entity called the church. And as I pointed out, Matthew is the only gospel of the four that uses the term ecclesia for church. Matthew also has a number of incidences which uh, focus our attention upon God's grace to the Gentiles. And so he's writing to a Jewish, uh, uh, what we would call today a Messianic Jewish community, uh, answering those questions. And he's connecting what happened in Jesus' ministry to the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. There are more allusions and more quotes from the Old Testament in Matthew than in any of the other in any of the other Gospels. And so as we see even in our uh, study this morning, we go back to connect Old Testament prophecy to fulfillment in the the life of Christ. Today we see the focus is on God's provision of a Savior. In the announcement to Mary in Luke 1 and to Joseph in Matthew 1, There is this emphasis upon the naming of the Savior. There's this confirmation in two separate instances of revelation. As the angel appears to uh, Joseph, to probably first Mary and then to Joseph, the angel reveals that the child shall be named Jesus or Yeshua from the Hebrew verb yasha, meaning to deliver, because he will deliver his people from their sins. So just in terms of a broad overview at the beginning, we're looking at the life of Jesus in his infancy, and we're looking at the original announcement of the angel as depicted in the upper left. Then we'll look next time at the move to Bethlehem and the birth of our Lord, and then his uh, being worshipped by the shepherds and the magi. Next week, you're going to learn all the things you thought you knew about the Christmas story that are wrong. So you don't want to miss that because there's a lot of misconceptions about what's going on uh, at the manger. So we'll look at that next time. And then from there, we'll move on into a little bit about the uh, uh, infancy. There's not much more said about the childhood of Christ. And then we'll move on in the Gospel of Matthew. So as we begin, let's look first at the announcement to Mary. So turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, it always impresses me how much information that Luke packs into just a couple of short verses. He gets all the information there in a very economic use of, of language. That we answer all the questions of who's there, what's going on, where are they from, why is it happening. All of that is there and it is, is summarized. But we see the em- emphasis here, as we'll see in Luke, is on G- uh, Jesus as being from the house of David connecting us, as we'll see, back to the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. This is important again and again. So in verse 27, Joseph is emphasized as being of the house of David. This comes in again a few verses later in verses 31 to 32, where our Lord is emphasized as being given the throne of his father, David. And then in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I want you to think, now we I should have said this before, now you can go back and look at the hymns we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Joy to the World, the emphasis on his being a king. In Joy to the World, it's easy for you to read that as if Uh, Isaac Watts is writing about the king reigning today, but that's a misreading of what he's writing. He's writing the message as it would be heard when Jesus was born. The king is here. The kingdom is about to come, and this is what's going to characterize the kingdom. Isaac Watts was a premillennialist. He believed that the kingdom was offered, that it's postponed, and it won't come until Jesus returns at the second coming. So he's not writing as if we're in some form of the kingdom today. He is writing as from the perspective of being uh, there at the time of Christ when the kingdom was present because the king was here, not because the realm had been established but because the king was here. Now, this this last week I took off for a couple of days and I presented a paper on the uh, cessation of the sign gifts, specifically the cessation, dealing with the cessation of prophecy and knowledge and tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13. It was at the Dispensational Hermeneutic Study Group. You can't say that real fast, more than once that uh, was started by a seminary that is a part of the uh, regular Baptist denomination up in um, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. The president of the seminary now is uh, Mike Stollard. I've known Mike for a lot of years. We were, uh, I'm not sure if we were actually classmates at Dallas. We may have been separated by a year, but I knew him all the way back when we were in seminary. And then he has been an active member and presenter of papers at a number of different scholarly groups that i've been a part of for for the last fifteen years or so and in fact mike will be um, Mike will be presenting at the Chafer conference this year uh, we have the uh, focus this year is going to be on dispensationalism and Mike uh, wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation on Arno C. Gabeline, who was one of the early dispensationalists in the in the early part of the 20th century, so he's going to deal with that and some other issues, but that's going to be good. But anyway, the focus of this conference was on the, the cessation of the sign gifts, and there were some interesting insights, some things that were connected together for me and for others there at the conference this week that are really important, and if you're here Tuesday night, you'll learn them. But part of it relates to the kingdom message. And so we have this emphasis in the Gospels on Jesus presenting the kingdom. And of course it's rejected, so it's postponed. And that's emphasized here in the very beginning of the announcement with, with um, uh, to Mary about the birth of the Savior. Now there are five things that we observe from these first uh, couple of verses. First of all, the sixth month that's mentioned there is the sixth month in the pregnancy of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is presented as a kinswoman, a, probably a cousin of Mary's. She is married to Zechariah, who is a priest. They are both uh from the uh from a levitical uh background a priestly family background Zechariah serving in his in the, in the temple and an angel appears to him and announces that his wife Elizabeth who has been barren is indeed going to give birth to a son and that son is going to be John the Baptist and so in the 6th month of her pregnancy uh, is when this announcement is made to Mary. So John the Baptist is roughly six months older than Jesus, and John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus. A lot of people don't realize that. It's also very likely that John and James, the two disciples, also called the sons of thunder, were also cousins. We're not on uh, on Mary's side as well. So it's interesting that the Gospels are also a family affair. So the sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that helps connect us to Old Testament prophecy as there was the prophecy that there would be a forerunner who would announce the coming of the Messiah, that forerunner being John the Baptist. That's fulfillment of prophecy. And then we have the birth of the Savior, the virgin conception and birth, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy. The second thing we see is that the announcement is made by Gabriel. There are only two angels that most people think of that are named in the, in the scriptures. There's Gabriel and Michael. Michael is the archangel. There's not more than one. Michael is the archangel, and Michael seems to be given the responsibility of protecting Israel. Gabriel seems to be given responsibilities to make revelatory announcements of, that specifically impact God's plan for the nation Israel. And so it is Gabriel who comes to who comes to Mary. Now, there's a couple of other angels that most people aren't aware of in the Bible. Um, one is Harold. Herald angel, saying about him earlier, heart the herald angel. And then there's Lo, we'll learn about him next week. Lo, the angel appeared to the shepherds. Just thought you needed to know that this morning. The third thing that we observe is that Luke is a very precise historian and he gives us a lot of intricate details. We'll see that there's some question about only one detail really in Luke's. Uh, Gospel we'll see next time related to the census of Quirinius. But there are a large number of historical events and geographical events that have been identified and enumerated in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is dead on accurate on every single one of them. He is an extremely precise uh, historian, and he locates these events uh, well for us. And as he's writing for Theophilus, who is a Gentile uh, of Greek background, he writes to help him, and it helps us understand uh, where these things are in these kinds of details. So he gives specific details, saying that the uh, angel Gabriel is sent by God to a city of Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, to a city of Galilee called Nazareth, and Nazareth was a very small, obscure village it didn 't have a very very positive reputation it 's rural, sort of the backwater in Galilee and it 's located on this map in the north. The brown area here is is Galilee. this is the uh, commonly called the Sea of Galilee, which is a poor translation it 's not a sea it 's a lake in in modern israel it 's uh, Lake Genesar or Genesaret; those words are are, are uh, etymologically related, and so Nazareth is just a tiny, tiny, tiny little village and uh, the people there who came from uh, Nazareth or from Galilee were thought to be sort of backward, uneducated, and uh, the people in the south around Jerusalem especially weren 't real impressed with the credentials of those who came from from uh, Galilee. So uh, Mary lives in Nazareth, and for some reason this was where Joseph now lived as well, and they're betrothed while there. And then later we find out that he goes to his traditional family home of Bethlehem. Why and how he's up in the north in Galilee, we don't know, but this is her home where she's from, and this is the location to which uh, Gabriel goes to make uh, this announcement. We learn also that they are uh, learn that they have not yet had sexual relations. They are betrothed and in Judaism at this time in second te- the second temple period now you 'll hear me use that term a lot. The first temple is the temple of Solomon, roughly from uh, approximately uh 970 BC until it's destroyed in 586 and uh the second temple was rebuilt under under uh, Zerubbabel the prophets involved like Haggai and Zechariah uh, in 516 and from 516 until its destruction in 70 that's the second temple period it's considered one temple, even though Herod comes in starting about approximately 20 B.C. with a massive renovation project, uh, it's still considered the same temple because sacrifices never ceased. So there was a continuation there. All of the laborers that were used up on the Temple Mount by Herod in rebuilding the temple, uh, and reconstructing it, renovating it, were all Levitical priests who were trained in all of the uh, construction skills necessary in order to do that because no one other than a priest could go up into certain areas on the Temple Mountain in order to maintain all of the uh, ritual purity required by the law, only Levites could could do the work. So they it's just a massive project. So this is the second temple period. And uh, uh, during this period, if the adultery was committed and if a husband was going to put away his wife, it was an extremely public event, uh, very extremely embarrassing uh, and uh, designed to be so, very harsh coming out of the legal, harsh self-righteous legalism of the Pharisaical tradition. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed, in fact, the rules related to divorce or to any sort of sexual immorality during the betrothal period were almost worse than if someone committed adultery after they were married. And so within Judaism, this betrothal period is an extremely uh, significant time period. Uh, Fifth thing we see is that that I want to emphasize is the name Mary is actually the... Uh, anglicized or Latinized form of the Aramaic Miriam. What's interesting is you don't find too many Jews naming their daughters Mary. They will name them Miriam. Miriam is the name going back to the sister of Moses and is a very time-honored name, but Mary is often associated, of course, with the mother of our Lord and the Latinized version of the name. And so that is, uh, uh, often not, not a name you will find. Uh, in the jewish community gabriel appears to uh, miriam and says rejoice highly favored one and the word that is used here is the uh, greek word uh, karatao perfect passive participle indicating that she has already realized this it's a completed action Uh, she has already been the recipient of god's grace to her And he says to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so she is taken aback by this sudden appearance of an angel. Now, for all uh, purposes, he appears to be a man, but there's something apparently different about him and something that is arresting about the way he addresses her and speaks to her. And so uh, she is quite perturbed. She's confused. This has brought her up short, and she's not sure what's going on. The text says that when she saw him, she was troubled—a word indicating perplexed or confused—and she doesn't really comprehend the significance of his saying. And so he goes on to explain in verses 30 through 33 the import of his—the the, the content rather—of his message. Uh, He says, starting in verse 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Notice the double emphasis now. Here we have the uh, noun charis, which is the noun form of the greeting word used earlier, charitao, that particular verb. The chari at the beginning shows the uh, correlation uh, the etymological relationship. So twice he's emphasizing the fact that she's a recipient of God's grace. Whenever you see repetition like that in Scripture, you know that God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to really pay attention to this, and that God is giving her a super abundance of grace in the role that she is going to play in in God's plan. It's not based on who she is or what she's done. It's based upon God's grace and God's own character in expressing His favor to her. It is not because she is is somehow special. Uh, In the Roman Catholic theology, they have elevated Mary above all other women in terms of her morality and spirituality, and that is not, uh, that is not part of the text. The scripture emphasizes that she's a recipient of God's grace, which is undeserved marriage. She is not being given this because she has done something to deserve it. There's also the doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary, which doesn't isn't talking about the virgin conception and birth. It's talking about her conception and birth, that under the doctrine of immaculate conception, she is born without a sin nature. And so that is very much a part of of uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. So that has led eventually to the almost deification of Mary uh, within the Trinity. And you see this trend going on today where Mary is elevated to to virtually the status of, of deity And this goes hand-in-hand with the emphasis that we see more and more from radical feminism in the way they are distorting the role of women within society in contrast to biblical uh, biblical teaching that both man and woman are created equally in the image of God, yet there are role distinctions for men and women. And so you get within radical feminism... Uh, women are being taught that the question you always have to ask is, what does this have to do about women? And I bring that up because back when seminaries were still orthodox and, and really concerned about being biblical, seminaries stated their purposes, as Dallas Seminary used to, that the purpose for the seminary is to train men for the pastoral ministry. This is not a slight upon women. It is just a recognition of what the Bible teaches, that the role of pastor-teacher, the role of teaching is for men. And women have other significant roles that men cannot participate in, such as giving birth, being a mother, raising children uh, to the glory and honor of the Lord. And so... In our modern era, there was a pressure from feminism to, and from the government for seminaries to let women in and enroll, or gosh, you won't get government money, and we won't give government aid or VA aid or things like that to uh, uh, to men who want to go to your school. And so the seminaries began to admit women in with equal status uh, as men in terms of pastoral training in the 60s and 70s as liberalism began to to uh, have its way it changed the dynamic in the in the classroom questions that would be asked would be very very different from questions that had been asked before and so this is all part of this trend that I'm pointing out is that we live in a culture today where the influence of radical feminism has, t- has also influenced the adoration of Mary within the Roman Catholic community to elevate her into deity so that uh, women can again have their rightful place. The, the whole theology is just, just borrowed from pure paganism, going back to the worship of the uh, fertility goddess, uh, back in the ancient world, and there are lots of studies uh, that have demonstrated many many of these uh, types of connections. You can go back into the early church and see where when Christianity went into a number of communities uh, for the first time that had um, uh, polytheism and they worshipped a mother goddess, that often they would take the figurine of the mother goddess and rename it. If it was Isis, it would be renamed Mary. And so that was what gave birth to the Mary cult. And the worship of Mary was just a borrowing of paganism. Mary is to be honored because she's the recipient of God's grace, not because there was something special or inherent within her where she deserved special Uh, special grace and so god is is bestowing his grace upon her just as he gives his grace to all of us not because we earn or deserve it but because that is god's the expression of god's will and expression of god's love so the angel says to her don't be afraid mary for you have found favor with god and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and of his kingdom uh, there will be no end now there are several things that we ought to observe from this passage first of all as i've emphasized that mary has found favor with god she is the recipient of god's grace Uh, the second thing that we should observe is that the, uh, that Gabriel tells her that she is going to conceive and give birth to a son. The emphasis really is on the conception because it is the conception that is, uh, truly miraculous. She gives birth the same way every mother gave birth, but it was the conception that distinguished the life that was in her womb from the life that was in all other wombs. So she's going to give birth to a son. This also emphasizes the true humanity of the Savior. He is born of a woman. This takes us back to the initial promise, the first indication of God's salvation plan in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of, Of the seed of the serpent. And so there is this tracing of this doctrine of the seed of the woman, the significance of the woman, uh, the virgin, all through the Old Testament leading up to its fulfillment in, in Mary. So she is going to conceive and give birth to a son. The third thing we see is that the son is going to be named Yeshua. Uh, which is the Hebrew or Aramaic form of the name. Jesus is the Greek form, and then we've anglicized that, brought it over into English as, as Jesus. But Jesus comes from the same uh, name as Joshua in the Old Testament from the root yasha, meaning to save or to deliver. And so there is a dual reference here, sort of a play on words, that you will name him. Uh, Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sins the word deliver is the word for salvation that's uh, the full statement there is given to to, uh, Joseph over in Matthew chapter 1 then the angel says that he will be great. Matthew twelve six. Jesus borrowed from that as he's uh, challenging his listeners and the Pharisees, and he says, "Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Uh, this is uh, this emphasizes his superiority over uh, over all others because he is not only true humanity, but he is undiminished deity. And so we see in the whole story of the Incarnation this emphasis on the unique conception and birth of our Lord because he is born as a true human via a human, normal human birth, but he is also divine because of the role of God the Holy Spirit within that, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Fifth, we see that the angel says that he will be identified as God. He's called the Son of the Highest. And later in verse 35, he's called the Son of God. That, th- those terms go together. Often in Judaism, rather than using the term God, they will, uh, out of respect for the name of God, they will use a substitute word. They will use a circumlocution. Often today you hear them refer to Hashem, the name and so they use that. And instead of reading the proper name of God as Yahweh, they will substitute Adonai. And often instead of saying the kingdom of God, which is what we find Matthew doing, he uses a kingdom of heaven rather than using the name of God. Uh, This is uh, also true in terms of calling Jesus the Son of God. Another way of saying it would be the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Highest. So this is an indication that that he is a Son of God. Now, what's interesting about the name Son of God is that in a birth narrative like this, we might think that he's talking about son in a birth sense. But when we understand the significance of this phrase, son of, this is an idiom in Hebrew. He's not talking about birth as much as he's talking about nature. Uh, In Hebrew, the idiom was that if you uh, shared certain characteristics with something, then you were called the son of that something. Forty-two times in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of God that is not emphasizing that god gave birth to him but that he shares in the attributes and characteristics of god he is it's another way of saying that he is uh, fully god he is of the same nature as god you see this in some passages in the old testament for example in numbers 17:10 when there is a period of rebellion against Moses, the Lord said to Moses, "Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign." This was when Aaron's rod had had budded to indicate God's choice of him as the high priest over against the rebellion from from uh, um, other priests, and so uh, he puts the rod back before the ark, and it's called to be it's to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Now that's what you read in English, but in Hebrew it's the sons of the rebels. And what's that saying? It's not that the rebels had kids, and it was their kids that that led the revolt. Is that they are characterized by rebellion, so they are called the sons of rebels. Uh, in other passages, for example, Second Kings six two, you have. Uh, the identification of a murderer as a son of a murderer it's not that he's not saying his father was the murderer but it is saying that he participates in the characteristics of being a murderer in job 30 verse 8 in english translations you only read fools even those without a name but actually it says sons of fools And it's not talking about the fact that their parents were fools, but it's talking about that they share in the characteristics of fools. So when we see titles of Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Son of Man, what that's emphasizing is that Jesus shares in the characteristics of the noun in the genitive which would be of God. That's the, the of in English indicates a genitive. So son of God means he shares in all the characteristics and attributes of God. Son of man means he shares in all of the attributes and characteristics of humanity. Uh, son of the Most High, again, he shares in all the attributes and characteristics Of the Most High. So, uh, Gabriel announces that he will be identified as being fully God. So he not only announces that he's going to be a son of Mary in terms of humanity, but also that he is the, uh, he will be identified as being fully God. The sixth thing that he points out is that he will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So the emphasis there is on that covenant that God made with David about a 1,000 B.C. And the central passage for that is 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. There is also another uh, counterpart to that in Psalm 89, which is a meditation upon the Davidic covenant. And then there's a parallel passage in First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. In the Davidic covenant, God promises David that God will establish him as an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And that culminates in one who is eternal. Solomon was not eternal. He was a creature. Uh, his other descendants were not uh, eternal. They were human. They were finite. So to have an eternal throne with someone who is sitting upon that throne for eternity demands a divine uh, person. And so there's the implication there that not only is the descendant of David human because he is a, a descendant of David, but that he must also participate in being in the attribute of eternality, which indicates he must also be divine. And so that is one of those many passages we've studied in the Old Testament emphasizing both the humanity and deity of the Messiah. So then uh, Mary begins to question this. She's confused still, and she's saying, well, how in the world can this take place? because I have not had sexual relations with a man. I am betrothed, but I am still a virgin. And the word that is used for virgin is the Greek word parthenos, which indicates literally a virgin. Uh, if you go to Athens and you go to the Acropolis, there is the uh, great play, temple to Aphrodite, who, and that, that temple is called the Parthenon. Same word, because Aphrodite was viewed as the virgin goddess. So uh, that is the same word that is used. It's the same Greek word that is used to translate the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14, a passage we'll look at because it's quoted uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 1. So Mary says, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel then explains to her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there is something of a mystery here because how this transpires we can't fully say, although there are some things we know uh, from uh, biology, from study of genetics, that help us to understand some of the dynamics that are going on here. But there this is not a sexual... Uh, event. This is a creation event under the power of God the Holy Spirit, just as God the Holy Spirit was used by God uh, the Father and the Son in the original creation. The reason the virgin birth is necessary, the virgin conception and birth, is first of all because all human beings are born spiritually dead because of Adam's original sin. Adam and Eve were originally created without sin. They were created with a flawless, perfect nature, but the instant that they sinned, they became spiritually dead. Corruption entered into the, uh, into the universe And everything in the universe became affected by sin. Not just their own spiritual death, but it affected biology and botany and astronomy. Everything changed. You had the beginning of the second law of thermodynamics, uh, everything running down, everything shifting into a state of entropy. And this, and it affected the corruption of animals. It affected the corruption of plants. And now you have the beginning of thorns and thistles. Uh, spir- the spiritual death was the spiritual aspect of the penalty on man. But then there were all of these other consequences that reverberated like, uh, like a tidal wave or a tsunami throughout all of God's creation. And so that every human being is corrupt and every cell in the human body is corrupt and we became spiritually dead and possessors of a sin nature. That sin nature is passed on physically. And it is passed on physically primarily through the, or exclusively through the male. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, Eve's sin affected one person. It affected her. Adam's sin was significant because he was the designated and bio, designated spiritual head of the race and he was the biological head of the race. Eve is brought from his body. So when he disobeys God, that is the determinative sin that impacts everything. And so this is what Romans 5:12 emphasizes, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin is transmitted; that sin nature is transmitted to all of his descendants. Now, biologically, there are some interesting things that happen. Every every cell contains 46 chromosomes, which carry the same genetic blueprint for the individual for the individual. These cells transmit all of the characteristics that make us who we are. They also transmit the the uh, sin nature. In reproduction, the in, in the male uh, spermatogenesis, it begins with one reproductive cell that has 46 chromosomes, which divide and throws off or divides into two cells of 23 chromosomes each. In the female, the original egg is produced also with 46 chromosomes, and then it divides in a process called meiosis and throws off 23 chromosomes which are discarded, which leaves a purified ovum, a purified egg. It is that egg that is with 23 chromosomes that then combines with the 23 chromosomes from the sperm of the male that then produces Uh, Life in the womb in a normal process. But in the case of Eve, there's not a provision of those 23 chromosomes from Adam because if that were to transpire, then there would be the transmission of the corruption of sin via the male. And so there is uh, something miraculous that takes place in the uh, genesis of Jesus so that God the Holy Spirit is able to fertilize uh, through his creative ability, not through a sexual ability, but through a creative thing. The reason I say that is the, the, the Mormon view is that God has sex with Mary. This is not what this is describing. It is describing a creative event by by God, the Holy Spirit, who is able to quicken, the ovum of Mary, so that she is able to, she conceives and gives birth to a son who is uh, without sin, and he does not inherit the sin nature or the corruption uh, from Adam. Now, in Matthew, we're told the story from Joseph's perspective. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. Interesting, the word for birth there in the Greek is heigenesis. Hey Genesis. What does that sound like? Genesis. Same form of the word. It can mean beginning. It can mean birth. Here it means birth, or it could mean has the idea of the beginning, the beginning of Jesus Christ or the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found or discovered with child. Of the Holy Spirit. Again, the emphasis is that this is the production of God, the Holy Spirit. It is miraculous. This is one of this is the first of three statements in Matthew that emphasize the virgin birth. This statement that he that she is pregnant of the Holy Spirit. The second is in verse twenty three, uh, where Matthew quotes uh, from Isaiah seven fourteen, uh, which shows how. Isaiah 7.14 was understood within a Jewish context that it was clearly talking about a virgin and not just a young woman of marriageable age. And then third, Matthew 1.25 states that after Jesus is born, uh, the text says, and he did not know her, that is, Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So three times in Matthew we have the emphasis on the virgin birth. That's the focal point of uh, verses 18 through 25 in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 1. Verse 19, we're told, in Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he's righteous, but he understands grace, and he does not want to set her aside publicly or embarrass her. But she has been discovered, she's pregnant, and I'm sure that Joseph is wondering, well, uh, with whom has she been having an affair? I'm sure he was uncertain, and so God, in his grace, uh, sends an angel not identified by name sends an angel to speak to Joseph an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream saying joseph son of david notice again the emphasis on joseph as the heir of the davidic throne joseph son of david do not be afraid to take mary your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and she will bring forth a son and they shall people shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, same as the message that Gabriel told Mary. So call his name Yeshua, for he will save, he will yasha in Hebrew, he will save his people from their sins. This is the emphasis in the Gospels, and the synoptics is the deliverance from sin, and that he will save us from their sins. And then the angel goes on to say, so all this was done, or actually, this is Matthew speaking in verse 22. The speaker changes. He says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. And then we have one of the most significant prophecies from the Old Testament. This was a prophecy given to Ahab or Ahaz in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7 at a time when the Southern Kingdom of Judea, which is which is ruled by a descendant of David, it's the throne of David in Jerusalem, and it's under threat by an alliance from the Northern Kingdom of Israel and Syria, and they are uh, uh, they have asked Ahaz to join them in an alliance uh, to, uh, against the Assyrians, and Ahaz has de- declined this, and so now they want to. Uh, come in and take him off the throne. They want to have a regime change in the south and replace him with someone of their own choice. In other words, they're giving an, bringing an assault against the uh, house of David. Uh, there are two signs that are going to be given in the chapter. One is a sign that is given to Ahaz related to the immediate deliverance, and then there is another sign that is given to those who are the descendants of the house of David, indicating a a. Uh, a long-distance sign... That the house of David will indeed survive. The way this is distinguished in the Hebrew text is the the, the second person pronouns the Us, shift from you singular, which is addressing Ahaz in the current situation, to a you plural, a Yal, indicating an address to the house of David. Isaiah seven fourteen, the quote that we have in Matthew one twenty three is addressed to the house of David. This is a sign. To reinforce God's promise in the Davidic covenant. And so, as it's translated in the English, behold, the virgin, there's an article there, it's not a virgin, not any virgin, but the virgin. That definite article emphasizes something that would be understood within the prophetic tradition, going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, emphasizing the humanity Of this descent, Uh, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Born of a human mother, but identified as being fully God and fully divine. And so, this is emphasized both in the Luke text and in Matthew that the birth of Jesus through the Virgin was to indicate that he is he is fully human. But he also is fully, de- fully divine and therefore qualified to go to the cross as a man to die in our place. But as God, what he does has infinite eternal value so he can pay for the sins of the whole world. So this is the message of the angel to Joseph. And then Joseph wakes up. Now, we've also had some pretty realistic dreams, but none of us have had a dream like this. Joseph woke up, he's aroused from his sleep, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded, I added the word exactly, Uh, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife. So this occurs in the betrothal period, and then he takes Mary as his wife, and he does not have sexual relations with her, verse 25, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and she and they call his name Jesus. The point is this is God's grace, God's grace to Mary, God's grace to the world to provide a Savior who will deliver us from our sins. Now, next time, we're going to look at the birth. We're going to look at what happens, what the circumstances were around the birth, uh, the birth in Bethlehem, where did it happen, how did it happen, when did it happen, what was its significance, who showed up, when did they show up, and uh, what did Herod have to say about it? So that will be next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things, be reminded about what you have done in your plan and purpose to give us a Savior, a Savior who would deliver us from our sins, a Savior who paid the penalty for our sins that we might not have to, a Savior who died in our place. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Every one of us, he died for your sins. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. There is no sin that God forgot about. There is no sin that was not imputed or assigned to Jesus on the cross He paid for every sin so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue isn't what we've done. The issue is what Christ did. And if we put our faith in Christ, if we trust in him, if we believe he died for us, then God will give us new life. He forgives us instantly of all sin. We're given new life in Christ. We're regenerate. The scripture says we're justified. We're declared righteous because we now possess his righteousness and we have an eternal life that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've learned today, the significance of what our Lord has done for us, the significance of your grace in our lives that covers every aspect of our life, and that all that we are and all that we have is from your grace. And may we not forget that or take it lightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.